We want to thank Jiawei for reading scripture. Uh, now we're going to watch a short video about today's passage. Let's have a look. Israel misuses the ark, 1 Samuel 4 through 7. The Philistines were Israel's strongest enemies during the days of Samuel, Israel's last judge. One day the Philistine army fought the Israelites and killed 4,000 Israelite soldiers. When Israel's army returned, their leaders wondered, why did the Lord let the Philistines beat our army? Instead of praying to God for help, they decided to take the Ark of the Covenant with them into the next battle. They thought the Ark would save them from defeat. The Ark of the Covenant was the special altar where God met with his people. But the Ark was not a good luck charm. The Israelites needed to learn to trust God himself and not the symbol of God. The two sons of Eli, the high priest, took the ark to the battlefront. When the people saw the ark, they gave such a great shout that the Philistines heard them. When the Philistines learned about the ark, they were afraid. They had heard about the problems God had brought on the Egyptians. Because they were afraid, the Philistines fought even harder. This time they killed 30,000 Israelites, including Eli's two sons, and they captured the ark of the covenant from Israel. A messenger returned to tell Eli the bad news. When he heard the Philistines had captured the ark, he was so sad that he fell backwards off his chair and died. Israel cried out. They felt as if God was no longer with them. Hope you enjoyed that video. Uh, we want to thank Ron Wheeler at cartoonworks.com. Uh, I managed to get his permission. Uh, to show that video and so if you want more of similar sort of uh, videos about Bible stories and that sort of thing, uh, go subscribe to his YouTube channel. Okay, Come let's unite our hearts and pray. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, we want to ask that as, at this time, Lord, you help us to hear your voice. I ask, Lord, that the words that I speak, the meditations of our hearts, Lord, will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lead us during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we're continuing from this whole uh, thing about the judges uh, that Pastor Ronald spoke about uh, last week. Uh, we're continuing this period of Israel's history uh, with the judges. And so, as, as we know, the, the period of the judges, there was this whole cycle. There was a cycle of uh, the people would, the, the Israelites would commit sin, uh, then they God would allow them to be delivered into the hands of their oppressors, they'll be in captivity, uh, they would suffer, and then they would cry out, God would hear them and raise up a judge for them, uh, a ruler, uh, and they would deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. So, cycle of sin, suffering, salvation, and and then after their land has peace, they would start sinning again. And so there's this whole cycle, and it goes on and on uh, throughout the period of Judges after the after they have entered the Promised Land. And what happens is increasingly this cycle uh, of sin and suffering and salvation, uh, this cycle gets increasingly worse. And so the, their sin gets increasingly worse. And so the background of today's passage is that it's set within the tail end of this period of the judges. And 
this downward spiral. Uh, and so it's just at the end of the period of the judges, just before the era of kings, before the first of Israel's kings, uh, King Saul, followed by David, Solomon, and so on. And so this was a period of moral and spiritual chaos. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The Israelites, uh, the, the Israelite leaders, even uh, the elders, they, they were far from God, distant from God. Now, several no notable characters in this story. Firstly, we have the Philistines. Uh, they were Israel's greatest enemy at this particular moment. Uh, if you recall from the story about Samson, uh, it's, the similar, uh, it's the same enemy. And so they are still the, the same ones that uh, Israel is wrestling against at this point of time. Uh, at different periods of their history, they will wrestle with different enemies and neighbors. At this time, it's the Philistines. And so the Philistines were a sea people, and they worshipped a god, a fish god named Dagon. Okay? And so they, they were militarily superior uh, to the Israelites, and so they were oppressing the Israelites during this time. The next bunch of characters we have are the Israelites themselves, uh, as well as the elders in today's passage. Uh, as I mentioned, they were distant from God, and as a result, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 3, which is uh, you have come across in our uh, one-year Bible reading, uh, it says, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, says, The word of the Lord was rare, there were not many visions. And so this was a period when people, the Israelites were distant from God, they didn't really hear from God, uh, they didn't have much to do with God other than the outward uh, you know, rituals and sacrifices and that sort of thing. Next we have Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, these are a, a very colorful bunch. They are Levitical priests, okay? they, they come from the line of Aaron. Uh, but First Samuel chapter two tells us how they abused their positions. They would um, the the priests actually are entitled to portions of meat, uh, specifically the breast and the upper thigh or the shoulder uh, of the meat offerings. Okay, so the the law provides for that that the 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 Levites, the, especially the Levitical priests, would get a share and a portion of those sacrifices. And uh, the, the fat of this meat was meant to be burnt as a pleasing aroma for the Lord. And, you know, whatever is remaining, uh, the priest would, that get, would then get the remainder. And so the thing about Hophni and Phinehas is that they wanted the best portions of meat for themselves even before the fat was burnt off. And so they didn't wait until the fat was burnt and until... Uh, and to, to only get the, the parts that they were entitled to, which were the breast and the upper thigh, uh, their servant, which was for them, uh, who worked for them, their servant will come and take a fork and plop, into the pot uh, while it was, is, while it was uh, still in the pot and choose whatever part that was best. And they would also get the meat raw before the fat would be burnt. And so this was uh, uh, an act of blasphemy even. Uh, it was an act of totally disregarding God's commandments and you know, 
putting their, their own desires above God and above their responsibility and duty as priests. On top of that, they also committed adultery with women uh, who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so it, it was, <laughs> they, they're just a, a horrible bunch, okay? Supposed to be the, the holiest people, but horrible bunch. And then we have Eli. Now, Eli is the high priest and also the judge at this period of time. He is the grandson of Aaron, and he is the father of Hophni and Phinehas. And so Eli is a, somebody who, um, he, he actually did care about uh, God. He cared, he, he, he had a heart uh, for God. He was concerned about following God's laws and that sort of thing. But he was not a very good parent. Uh, he, you know, he, he, tried, he tried to rebuke his sons, but you know, they just didn't listen. Lah. And so he really didn't uh, have any effect on them. He wasn't a strong enough parent or a strong enough leader. And uh, what's interesting is that towards the end of chapter 4, you know, it, it, the Bible talks about him being heavy. <laughs> the Bible usually doesn't mention uh, the, you know, the, the body size or shape of people. And so this is actually probably because he also benefited from these fat portions of meat that were given to the priests. And uh, he also did not stop the ark from being carried into battle, even though he was worried about it. And so he probably had good intentions, but uh, very poor follow-through. He was a weak leader. Uh, next character we have is uh, God, of course, and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark is not the same as uh, Noah's Ark. Uh, it is, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a box made of wood inlaid with gold. Uh, two cherubim, or angels, had their wings outstretched. And so it symbolized God's presence among Israel. The Ark was where God's presence was uh, thought or, or visualized to be among the people of Israel. And so the ark is taken by the Philistines during this whole story, and God is seemingly captured. Now, throughout the, this entire sermon, the words captured are always in inverted commas because, of course, we know God is God. He cannot be contained. He cannot be captured, but that was what uh, the Philistines thought. That was what the Israelites thought. And so God and the Ark of the Covenant uh, are the main characters from continuing after 1st Daniel chapter 4 into chapter 5, 6, and the early part of 7. And so that, that is his story arc. Now the big idea of today's passage, and so if you forget every single thing uh, that is being preached today, this is the one sentence that you remember and you reflect on. The big idea is that God's purpose, presence, and power prevails in every predicament. Uh, I challenge you to say it 10 times fast. <laughs> okay, but I will say it one more time for you slowly. Huh? God's purpose, presence, and power prevails in every predicament. And the first thing we want to look at today is God's purpose and how the Israelites responded to defeat. Now, 
At the start of today's passage, we see how the the Israelites and the Philistines they were in battle somewhere, uh, Ebenezer, Ephes, and uh, the Israelites lost. They lost about four thousand men in battle with the Philistines. And so, First Samuel chapter four verse three uh, says, "When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked." Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that He may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, what's interesting here is that they actually asked the question, but they did not seek the answer. They asked, "Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines?" And straight away they went into a solution. Or what they thought was the solution, they asked God. They did not listen, uh, or we don't know whether he was. They they were actually asking God or just asking each other, but they just went ahead with their own presumptions. I was reading an article from the Harvard Business Review uh, in preparation for this sermon. Lah, not something that I do regularly. I'm not a businessman. Uh, there was an article called "Strategies for Learning from Failure," and so just a quote from that article. It says, "The job of leaders is to see that their organizations don't just move on after a failure, but stop to dig in and discover the wisdom in it." And so we see that there's a there is wisdom to be had in learning from failures. And it's particularly the the leader's responsibility uh, to gain that wisdom in analyzing failures, and so the elders of Israel, as leaders of Israel, including Eli being the judge, uh, they were right in asking why did Israel fail, but they did not really follow it up any further, and so just contrast this. With the attitude of Joshua,、uh, something similar happened in the Battle of Ai, which was,、uh, which is found in Joshua chapter seven verse six, and this is immediately after the Battle of Jericho,、uh, huge triumph and、uh, something that they thought was also impossible, and so Ai, in comparison, is just tiny little town, and they went straight into battle with them. Uh, and they lost, and so their response to defeat, almost a similar situation, was Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. And not just him, the elders of Israel did the same. They sprinkled dust on their heads, which is a sign of mourning and and humility and grieving and all that. And so they they knew that they experienced defeat. They probably asked the same question: Why God do you allow this? And they listened. They waited on God, and God responded. He basically tells them, "Get up! Why are you on your feet?"、Uh, and he gives them the reason for their defeat.、Uh, he points out Achan's sin.、Uh, Achan, if you remember, is this guy who、uh, stole the devoted things, the the things that were meant、uh, for for. God and for destruction,、uh, he he stole them and coveted them for himself. And so, coming back to today's story, the Israelites, the the leaders, the elders, 
instead of introspection and repentance, they responded with presumption. And so they were really trying to repeat a form of something that proved successful before. Uh, if you remember just probably about uh, one generation before, they would have heard stories about how uh, Jordan, Jericho, or maybe some of them would have been alive during that time, uh, slightly older by now. They would have heard stories of uh, how they crossed the River Jordan, how they uh, defeated the city of Jericho. And instrumental is probably part of their, in the middle of their stories, would be the Ark, the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and how it went ahead of them uh, into the River Jordan, went with them as they circled the city seven times and blew the horn and that, that thing. And so they knew that, okay, uh, the Ark of the Covenant went with the people of Israel during those times and then they won. And so they thought, hey, let's try the same thing. Uh, let's do the same thing. And so they brought the Ark of the Covenant out into battle and they gained morale. Uh, they, they shouted with a great shout, yeah, we have our God with us. And uh, so they, they rallied, they had a lot of morale. Uh, their enemies also had fear. And so they were, they were like, oh no, there's a, they, they're bringing their gods into battle. Uh, and so they, but instead of the, the fear crippling them, the fear rallied them into desperation. And so they basically uh, told one another, uh, we need to make a last stand. We're going to die, so we might as well go, go down fighting. You know, be strong, die like men. Uh, they were doing a, a 300. Uh. And so the result was that the Israelites lost, even though the Ark of the Covenant was with them. Uh, they lost worse uh, a worse defeat than their, fir their first defeat at the start of this passage. Uh, that time they lost 4,000 men, now they lost 30,000 men, and they also lost the Ark of the Covenant, which was captured by the Philistines. And so the Israelites wanted God's power, but they ignored His purpose. Now we might think, of course, they ignored God's purpose. They were so distant from Him during this period. They, they would not have cared about uh, what he wanted and that sort of thing. But I think even for us, it's easy to overlook God's purposes when we are quick to react. Uh, especially when we assume that our past interactions with God are enough for our present and future. And so what we know about God and how he works, we just carry that over into uh, how, what we're supposed to do now and in the future. But that is not how a relationship works. Yes, God is unchanging, okay, what he wants, uh, his, his larger purpose, his character, his values, all those don't change, but relationship with him must be living and ongoing, seeking him daily. God's plan for us today may not be exactly to, re to keep repeating and doing the same things that he wanted us to do five years ago or ten years ago or maybe even last month. And so, bringing it home, if any of you during this period of the MCO have been tempted to let your faith slack, uh, just waiting for this MCO period to be over, 
assuming that God only wanted to interact with you or work through you in ways that you were familiar with before the MCO, friends, don't fall into that trap. The Bible is full of examples of how God speaks and works in new places and new ways to different people. And so our God has not changed, but our present circumstances, our context has changed. And so our faith and our relationship with God carries on into this different context. And so, friends, we need to remain spiritually open-minded to God's purposes. We, we can't stay stuck presuming that God only wants to do things the way that we are used to, the way that we have interacted with Him, uh, or the way that we have ministered before Him uh, in the past. We need to remain spiritually open-minded to how God wants to do something different. He is still working, even though things are different now. Now the second point, so first point, uh, God's purpose. Second point is God's presence. Now the Ark of the Covenant, together with the tabernacle, as well as the entire Israelite camp, they were supposed to follow where God went. And so if you remember during the period of the wilderness, while they, are, they, they, they camp in the desert, and then the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud uh, would move, and then the whole of Israel would just pack up camp and follow. And so the Ark of the Covenant would be part of their camp. Okay? And so God's presence moved, and they, including the Ark of the Covenant, followed not the other way around they did not decide where to go and then the presence of god follows them and blesses them and backs them up and provides protection and so using the ark as a sort of good luck charm or god like uh, god luck charm uh, does not it is not depending on god himself to win the battle when when they use the ark of the covenant as a Good luck charm. They weren't depending on God. They were depending on the ark itself as a, a physical object, as some sort of spiritual relic or talisman. Uh, maybe they watched the first Indiana Jones movie, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I actually wanted to show a clip from that movie to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, but the, the scene where they opened the ark is actually very very graphic. Uh, it is fake lah, okay. But there are like faces melting and that sort of thing. So mm, not something that that it should be showing. But you know maybe they thought it was something like that. You know they can use the ark as a weapon, open it in front of their enemies, uh, that sort of thing. Now since the ark symbolized the presence of God, that uh, rested between the wings of the cherubim, it was as though they were putting their trust in God's chair or his throne instead of God himself. And so without God, this is basically a, a superstitious act. Sorry, Siri activated for some reason. Yeah, so without God, this, this putting their faith and trust in this spiritual chair, okay, to put it crudely, was basically a superstitious act. 
Now, as Malaysians, we are we are no strangers to superstition. Uh, there's one common example is this whole. Uh, you go into a building, you get into the elevator, you look at the numbers of floors, and I tell you, 80-90% of the time, you cannot find the fourth floor. Uh, it's always a 3A floor. Uh, if you go around, you take a walk around your neighborhood, don't do it now, MTO, uh, but if you were to do it uh, previously or later, after the MTO ends, You'll find that usually there's no house number 4, it is a house 3A, straight 3A. Why? Because 4 in Chinese sounds like die, right? Si. Uh, sounds like die. And so, bad luck. Or another example, uh, if you remember when you were younger, sometimes you're not so thorough with your food. I never had this problem because I ate a lot, but <laughs> some kids don't always finish all their food and so they leave some rice on the plate and then their parents would say if you don't finish all the rice on your plate you know in the future your your wife or your husband going to have lots of pimples uh, oh another example uh, it's considered really bad luck to sweep other people's feet because they're sweeping away their luck or oh, another example after a funeral you need to go and take a bath because maybe ghosts will follow you uh, uh, for people who are getting married, just before they get married, uh, they get their ne their nephew or their niece or some kids to go and jump on their bridal bed, because that will like usher in uh, lots of happy kids in their own family. Uh, and of course the uh, favorite one of mine, make sure your handphone number is zero one eight. Eh, 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 eh. <laughs> Why? Because in Chinese it sounds like Ling Yi Ba 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 And so that sounds like the, the number 8 sounds like the word for success, the Chinese word for success. So it's almost like your phone number is 01 success, 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 success. And so this may sound silly, but we also have Christian superstitions. When we use the form of Christian or churchy or holy things to try and influence things and we focus on the form and we try to manipulate our circumstances, that is a form of Christian superstition. Let me give you an example. Hanging or wearing crosses or paintings of Jesus, uh, praying hands, Lord's Supper, physical Bible, putting in a car, in a glove compartment, in a drawer, uh, because there's a belief that you know those things, these physical objects, will bless the household or protect us from harm. That is a form of Christian superstition. Or playing Christian music, uh, just playing it non-stop, whether you're actually listening or not to, a, to an empty room, or to a coma patient to try and heal, or that sort of thing. And so, just believing that the, the music itself, and even though no one's actually listening to it, uh, will bring about some sort of blessing, or healing, or protection. Or maybe you don't do those kind of things. Uh, some more common examples that 
we might be able to relate to. Uh, reciting a prayer, especially the Lord's Prayer, because it is memorized. We've all memorized it, and that's a good thing. But reciting these prayers without actually talking to God, and so just mouthing the words, reeling it off by memory, without actually you know, thinking about God, about God or, or interacting with Him, and it's just words, like we're chanting it. Or taking communion elements with the belief that it will cleanse us from our sins, or that it will provide spiritual covering somehow, like a potion. Or, most common, uh, being physically present for church services and activities, uh, because somehow our physical presence there makes us more righteous in God's sight. Whether or not our brains and hearts are present, whether or not we're actually giving God our attention, as long as we are physically there, somehow in the church building, we will be blessed or protected. Uh, friends, don't misunderstand me. All these things are important. All these things are uh, good, okay? But they are meant to help us worship or love God more. They are not meant to replace God. And so the ark was meant to be something that helped Israel worship God, uh, help focus their, their attention on God. But instead, they trusted in form over substance. And so this resulted in superstition. And so when we place our trust or hope in, in form without the substance of relationship with God, so form without substance, when we place our trust in these forms, it is superstition. And when you come right down to it, superstition is a form of idolatry. When we trust in something other than God, when we put something above God in uh, what we hope in, what we depend on, uh, what our lives revolve around. Now, I was looking up the definition of superstition online, and basically a lot of it was uh, belief that is not based on scientific fact, belief that is not based on uh, rational stuff. And so by the internet and most of the world's definition, super superstition includes God and the Christian faith. And so, okay, for me and for, for us who, for, who do believe in uh, a living God, uh, what separates superstition from faith? Now, here's how I see it. Superstition tries to manage the unknown by controlling the known. Let me repeat that. Superstition tries to manage the unknown by controlling the known. So you don't know how things are going to turn out, but you try to manage it by controlling the things that you do have control over, like the, the things that you hang, the things that you wear, the things that you place in certain places. Faith, on the other hand, manages the unknown by knowing the one who controls it. Let me repeat that. Faith manages the unknown by knowing the one who controls it. And so even though we don't know how things are going to turn out, we manage that unknown by knowing God because He controls everything, including the unknown. And so our faith must always be in the God who controls the universe, never in the things around Him. I strongly believe, friends, that the MCO is an opportunity for us to distill our faith. Just being away from our usual, uh, you know, our usual practices of, of 
church and ministry helps us distill our faith because when the familiar forms of Christian worship and discipleship, fellowship, and all these things are stripped away, the forms are stripped away, what remains of our faith is the substance. When we no longer have uh, all the, the worship leaders with the bands, the, the, the live music and uh, other people standing before us, and people looking over our shoulder and all those sort of things, we no longer have uh, offering bag passed right in front of your nose and you know people can see whether you put something in or not. Friends, when all those forms are stripped away, what remains of our faith is the substance. And so we've been having online worship services for over a month now. I'm especially grateful to everybody who comes to worship God online during this unusual time. I, I am thankful that you are all joining us uh, to, to continue worshipping God, even at this time. And I'm especially thankful that we're not squabbling over whether there's a, a wooden cross in the background or whether there's a physical Bible on a, visible on a table or whether or not we sit or stand for the doxology. Those are all forms. In May, our Methodist churches are also going to be conducting Holy Communion online. Uh, when we do that, we need to focus on the substance of remembering Christ and celebrating His presence with us instead of the forms of what brand of bread we use, what brand of juice, uh, what color is the juice, uh, what do the plates, what do the cups look like, that sort of thing. Friends, those are all forms, the substance of why we do those things and our relationship and worship with God is more important. Bottom line, always make sure that God is at the center of it all. Everything else, including prayers, songs, symbols, services, those are all only meant to lead us towards Him. They're important. We put effort into them. We've, we observe them because they are supposed to lead us to God. They are supposed to help us to worship God, not replace Him. Third point, God's power. Uh, we come to the third act of the story, and so Ark is captured, uh, messenger comes, runs, tells Eli, oh no, uh, your sons are dead, and by the way, the Ark of God is also captured. And so Eli, uh, he, he, in his shock, he falls off his chair, you know, like how in anime or, or cartoons, they, every time they're shocked, you know, they fall. <laughs> that kind of thing. So he does that, but he's heavy, right? And so he falls on his neck, he dies. Uh, and his daughter-in-law is also shocked. And in her shock, it triggers the pregnancy that uh, she's already pregnant, huh? but it triggers her labor. Okay, so... In her shock, oh, Sandy gave birth to baby, and uh, she also ends up dying as a result. But before she dies, uh, she names her newborn Ichabod, which means literally it means no glory, and so it is sort of like a prophetic name to say uh, you are named no glory because the glory has departed from Israel. Uh, what is this glory? Uh, the glory is associated with theophanies or appearances of God to men. And so examples, uh, the burning bush, 
Moses and the tent of meeting, when he meets with God, his face becomes shiny, that sort of thing. And so the glory of the Lord, usually this, this visible uh, glory, that usually would reside on the Ark of the Covenant. But at this time, uh, in this period of Judges, when they're so far from God, this was mainly not a very present thing. Uh, remember, the, the word of God and visions from God and all that were very rare. Okay, so it, it wasn't, uh, his presence was not manifested among them a lot of times, uh, most of the time, because they, they had sinned so greatly uh, and that sort of thing. And so this was a fulfillment. Uh, sorry. Uh, so the glory has departed. It's like a mini exile. Uh, the Hebrew word to, to, re to refer to this word departed uh, is used many times to refer to the exile, the exiles of the Israelites to uh, Assyria and also to Babylon, the, the major exiles in their history. One uh, Siri triggered again. <laughs> and so, sorry. Yeah, so, so this word departed refers it is it's almost like a mini exile at this period of time when God is is removed from the the presence of His people. Uh, it's like He's being He is exiling Himself uh, from them, and so this is really a fulfillment of the covenant of curses for disobedience. If you remember, uh, the law of Moses was very simply summed up: if you follow the commandments of God, you'll be blessed. If you disobey and you sin, you'll be cursed. And the ultimate curse, exile, removal from God's presence. And so this is basically what's happening. God allows the ark to be captured. This means sacrificial system, worship, the, the form of worship that the Israelites know uh, cannot continue. And so this must have seemed to them like a defeat that they could not recover from. It's not just losing a treasure. It's they would have felt like they were losing their identity as a people of God. This was their darkest moment. And as with every other disaster recorded in the Bible, this is not the end of the story. We know that uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, what comes after that? Chapter 5, right? And so chapter 5 onwards, God saves himself from captivity. Uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in Dagon's temple, the Philistines' fish god. And now the Philistines had one more god in their temple, so they, they thought, oh yeah, we captured their god, now we are more powerful, we got extra gods with us. But twice, Dagon, the, the statue of Dagon, their god, was found on his face, prostrate, before the Ark. And the second time, uh, his head and, and arms broke off. And so that was a very, uh, that was God basically telling this, the, the, the Philistines, look, your God bows down to me. Uh, and secondly, he's actually not God. Uh, he, he can be broken. Okay. And so after that, God strikes the Philistines with tumors and plagues of rats. And so eventually the, the Philistines cannot tahan and they said, how, how do we solve this? Get rid of the ark. You know, send it back to the Israelites. And so they put it, they loaded it on a, a cart drawn by two cows and 
basically let it go and eat the cows make their way back to the Israelites. And so the Israelites didn't have to go and rescue God. They didn't have to send Liam Neeson in to use his very particular set of skills to recover what was taken. For those of you who haven't watched the movie Taken, it's a very good movie. Uh, they didn't have to go and rescue God. Can you imagine how the Israelites would have felt just you know, probably still in mourning and then seeing two cows making their way uh, and a cart being pulled by these cows and what's on the cart? The Ark of the Covenant that was lost and there's no one else around? Like, can you imagine how they would have felt? There was no driver, it was just cows, okay? I think it's fair to say that this would have been way beyond the expectations of how God works and their, their past experience of how God worked with them. And so, friends, this whole capture of God and him saving himself from capture, this is also foreshadowing something. Because God was once again seemingly captured by Roman soldiers over a thousand years later. And he was nailed to the cross, he was killed, and his followers thought that it was all over. They lost all hope. But once again, it was not the end of the story because Good Friday always gives way to Easter Sunday. And so friends, when things are darkest, when all you can see is defeat all around you, remember that with God, victory is always around the corner. He always has the final say. You might be feeling powerless at this time. I don't know your situation. You may be feeling powerless over your finances. You may be feeling powerless over your job security in the months to come because of this whole coronavirus and lockdown and all that. Uh, you may be feeling powerless over the health of your spiritual, uh, sorry, your, your marital relationship or your relationship with your children. You may be feeling powerless over your own physical health and well-being. And friends, I'm not here to rally you. I'm not here to, to uh, pump you up, tell you, you can do it. Uh, you can overcome, believe in yourself. You know, because sometimes the best thing for us to do is really accept our own powerlessness over our situation, especially when it's beyond our control. And we've gone over from healthy personal responsibility and agency and, and stewardship over to unhealthy worry and fear where we do not trust God. So I'm not here to tell you believe in yourself. I'm here to tell you, believe in God, because the God that we follow is powerful and He can overcome. We may be powerless, we may give up believing in ourselves, but never give up believing in God. He can sustain you, He can provide for you, He can redeem you, He can heal you. So we shouldn't trust in superstitions, or religious forms, neither should we trust in our own ability. Trust in God. He alone can overcome anything and everything. In conclusion, friends, know, know that God cannot be limited by our past experiences, by our presumptions, by our expectations. We follow an infinite God. 
he cannot be limited by what we think and what we uh, expect, presume, what we have experienced. B, be cautious about reducing the Christian faith to mere activity about Christ, but without Him. Make sure that Christian activity always leads you directly to Christ. Whatever that you are doing that does not lead you to God and becomes an end in itself, that can be pruned away. Or make sure that it leads you to God. Try and uh, reorder or refocus or reflect uh, whatever. Make sure that it leads you to God. Do seek God's purposes. Relate with Him as a person and trust in His power over all. Don't wait for failure. Don't wait for things to go wrong and then only you ask, Oh no, why God did you allow this? Start seeking God's purposes in everything. Not just the big things, but even the little things. And always trust Him from His perspective. Friends, I leave you with this challenge. That in this period of the MCO, you really focus on your relationship with God. Get to know Him better as a person. All these other forms and things are secondary. Use this opportunity to get to know God even better. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.